This is episode number 120, The Science of Meditation with Dr. Dave Vago. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Every moment is an opportunity to actually change your brain in a positive way, a way that can be adaptive, that can be help you flourish, that can help your performance, or it can contribute to risk factors for psychopathology like depression and anxiety, stress-related diseases, cancer. It can degenerate your DNA at the cellular level. We've seen this. So what you fill your mind with really matters. I hope you've had an awesome week. And for those of you who are American, happy 4th of July. To those of you who are Canadian, happy July 1st. And for the rest of you, happy, happy days. It's hard to believe that it's already July, but it's been a great summer so far, and I hope you guys have been up to some really fun adventures. I'm pretty excited to tell you guys all about this week's guest, and he's very impressive. His name is Dr. Dave Vago, and I first found Dr. Vago in the 10% Happier Meditation app that I use. In the app, there is a lot of variety between different meditation instructors and courses with educational videos before you actually start the meditation. I really like this app because there's a lot of different people to learn from, and each instructor resonates with me in a different way. I was pretty excited when I found a course in the app called Meditation and the Brain, and I was immediately drawn to it. I've always had a strong interest in neuroscience, and in fact, part of my master's degree is actually in neuroscience. So I decided to take a deeper look after taking this meditation course in 10% Happier, and I took a look into Dr. Vago, and I learned that he is a cognitive neuroscientist and is the research director for the Osher Center of Integrative Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He also maintains an appointment as a research associate in the Functional Neuroimaging Lab at Harvard, where he also used to work. And if you're not inspired and impressed yet, he held the position of Senior Research Coordinator for the Mind and Life Institute and is currently a Mind and Life Fellow, supporting the Mind and Life mission by advising on strategy and programs. He's worked with John Kabat-Zinn and even the Dalai Lama. Some of his work includes studying the brain scans of meditators to determine enhanced areas of blood flow and activity, and he's also worked on papers helping define mindfulness. He also did a popular TED Talk in 2017 called Self-Transformation Through Mindfulness, and you can find that in the show notes, or you can go onto YouTube and search Dr. David Vago, TEDx Nashville, and you can find that there. Dr. Vago's interest in meditation began in his early 20s, and he went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat at the suggestion of his uncle. And his interest in neuroscience and meditation crossed professionally after conducting a study showing that meditation, specifically learning how to regulate attention and emotion, helped women with the chronic pain of fibromyalgia. In this episode, you'll learn why Dr. Vago decided to study neuroscience, discerning and contextualizing mindfulness and meditation, the science of your brain on meditation and the parts of your brain that change from meditation, how Dr. Vago saw the Dalai Lama pissed off, how to manage anger, if exercise counts as meditation, how to achieve a flow state using meditation, 
how sleep can be affected actually negatively from too much meditation, and if there's an optimal dosage of meditation for results. I think you guys are going to really love this episode, but first I wanted to say big thank you to Kuat Racks, who is helping all of us access our outdoor adventures worry-free. And I have a Kuat Sherpa rack on the back of my car. It's a trailer hitch rack with two trays. It's super easy to use. It's lightweight. It's, I don't know, ever have to worry about my bike falling off the car, which was my concern for many years and why I didn't own a bike rack for many, many years as a cyclist. And Kuat this year has gotten into the outdoor space as well, and their racks can carry things like kayaks and skis. So go and check out kuatracks.com. That's K-U-A-T-Racks.com and upgrade your adventure. A few more little items of business before we jump into the interview. I want to give a big thank you and shout out to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site and it's a way to give back to the show if you're finding value in it. It's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And as another thing, if you hear something in the show that you want to remember, or even if you want to remember to shoot us a couple bucks over on Patreon, you can use Siri or whatever the audio app is on your phone to set reminders. Some of the feedback people have given me is they are driving when they're listening to the podcast and they wish that they could remember or take notes, some of the stuff in the intro or some of the things that they've learned from the guest. So and a suggestion is that you could use audio dictation in order to remember things. I also want to thank you for purchasing my Plant Powered Tribe cookbook. It's a cookbook with 25 recipes that are all super healthy, plant-based, and really fast and easy to make. And it's an e-cookbook. You can get it at moxieandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. And speaking of Moxie and Grit, we have a bunch of new socks that are going to be shipping in three days. We have Majestic Bee Socks. We have Classy as F Mustache Argyle Socks. And we have Team Unicorn Socks. Those are pretty fun. And thanks to those of you who have pre-ordered those socks. And there's going to be a limited amount available for purchase as well. All right. So if you enjoy this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and to take a screenshot and share the show with your friends. Both myself and Dr. Vago are on Twitter and Instagram. So if you like the show, we love seeing what you learn from it and seeing who is listening. So don't forget to give us a shout out on social media. All right. Here is Dr. David Vago with the science of meditation. I'm so excited to chat with you today, Dr. Vago. Yeah, well, it's so wonderful to be here, Sonia, lasagna. Um, <laughs> I just talking briefly with you before, you know, getting started here. I'm really excited to engage with your audience and your listeners and to talk about the science of meditation and what it can actually do for your brain and body, whether it will help you with that edge or not. So yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I found you through 10% Happier and you have your own course in the app. And I really I really like the app because it has a lot of variety and it also has these courses, these little short video clips before you start the meditations to give you the reason for why you're doing it. Totally. Dan Harris is a great skeptic. And, you know, for those of you out there who are really skeptical and want to understand what's the truth here, is there a real value in doing meditation practice? You know, Dan's a good, he's a good sounding board because he hasn't quite swallowed the Kool-Aid, although he practices regularly. He 
you know, when I say swallow the Kool-Aid, I just mean that he hasn't really bought in completely 100%. Like, oh, this is the, this is it. This is the thing that's going to solve all of our problems in humanity and make us super athletes and super cognitive capacity people to study everything. You can imagine, no, he asks good questions. So if you want to find more really great podcast interviews, definitely, Dan, is a good place to go. Totally. So I want to talk about your background a bit. I read that you have a background in neuroscience. Is your PhD in neuroscience? Yes, PhD is actually in cognitive neuroscience. So it's a mix between what was really thought of as the school of cognition and experimental psychology. So it has, you know, what most people think of as neuropsychology is actually a clinical practice of doing testing for deficits. For example, you knock your head, get a concussion. We want to know what deficits you have. You you go to a neuropsychologist. Uh, And cognitive neuroscientist really talks about mind and brain and tries to really understand correlates for function or behavior and also substrates, meaning what brain regions or activity is actually producing some of those experiences that you're having inside or how you deal with the world. Yeah, I actually didn't even know that cognitive neuroscience was a field because I actually studied neuroscience in grad school in the engineering program. And they learned how like we learned how the brain worked and how to basically create hardware to interact with the brain to fix issues. But the yeah. cognitive neuroscience thing is actually something that just came to my attention this year. And a friend of mine, actually, I think there's a program in Reno, Nevada on that level, too. And I just heard of her talking about like perception in the brain and how we're starting to try to start studying this stuff. Yeah, you know, the actual field of cognitive neuroscience only came about in the 1990s. In fact, when I graduated with a degree in brain and cognitive sciences, only my school and MIT were the only two schools that actually had that kind of interdisciplinary program that took the best of cognition and psychology, mixed it with neuroscience. And so really, we are talking about just observable correlates and substrates for behavior since the 1990s. But today, I think we're more focused a little bit more on how the mind can interact with that hardware, right? So we're starting to realize that our mind actually has a lot of influence on the hardware. And that is something that's very new in the last 10 years. I think we're only realizing that potential of mental training to not only regulate our emotions, to improve our ability to pay attention, to sustain attention, but also to how to manage emotional experiences like pain, like the emotional experience of pain. So that might be really relevant to anybody who's on painkillers. Mindfulness really produces a an, uh, an inner engineering approach to dealing with pain. Yeah, I actually read this book a long time ago called The War on Pain, and it was about specifically people who were taking painkillers and then how there's a, a large psychosomatic component to that and how if you think that huge. you're doing something, it can actually take away the pain. <laughs> huge, huge. So, I mean, we know we're in the pain. Like, we're basically in a public health crisis right now in terms of uh, opiate use and pain in general. I mean, there's, I think, 40% of adults in the United States claim to suffer from some form of chronic pain. You know, and there's about, I think the statistic was about 115 people, more than 115 people die after overdosing on opioids, and that's per day. And of those people, 115 people who die per day from opioids, like 20 or so die as a result of prescription opioids. So it's definitely a problem. And mindfulness or meditation is just one of those 
techniques now that we're using in integrative medicine and in different forms of healthcare to help manage pain. And it's showing to be much more effective than any pharmacological approach. I mean, by giving you opiates, it's not helping you manage your pain very much, except in an acute setting. So there's a lot of potential here, for sure. And I heard you say mindfulness or meditation. Are those two different things or are uh, they the same thing? Yeah, great question. You know, a lot of people, You, I think it should be clear, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast should really walk, leave, get up from wherever you are and from your car, your table or desk, wherever you are, and be able to make that distinction. Meditation really is an English word. It comes from, actually, the origin of meditation comes from the Old Testament, a word called haga. In Greek, it's melete, and in Latin, it's meditatio. So probably most resembles the Latin word meditatio. And it was always, you know, in the classical period between the 5th and 8th century of the Common Era. Um, this was sort of the classical period. Meditation, as it was translated from the Old Testament and Latin, was it just a practice associated with thought and reflection and contemplation. And that was really considered a general technique of focusing attention in a sustained fashion with the aim of deepening states of concentration, tranquility, um, and insight. And from the Christian classical period or the Christian point of view, it was the insight was really with the nature of God to sort of become one with God. And we're really talking, you know, very early on in classical Greece or the Greco-Roman Empire. Um, this was the Aristotle considered contemplation the highest form of wisdom, is to actually reflect upon oneself. And this, so really meditation, boiled down to one definition, comes into any practice that involves the self-regulation of attention. And that practice can be used with the pursuit of wisdom, like Aristotle suggested we do, or it can be done in the tradition of a theological tradition like Christianity to do meditation to discover insight into the nature of God. So you could be meditating to regulate your attention to focus on oneness with God in a very religious connotation, or you can do it really to reveal the nature of mind as it is, to gain insight into the nature of mind. And so when we start to look at how meditation was translated later on, even into well, when Sanskrit scholars, so the original language in India, Sanskrit, were trying to translate Sanskrit words, and this comes from the 6th century BCE. Wow. So I was just talking about the classical period, which is 600, 1,200 years later. You know, the Hindus had their own description and words for meditation. They had Dahyana, which is the Sanskrit word, and Bhavana, also Sanskrit, and a Tibetan word called Gom. And all three of these words really refer to the process of meditating, but it is directly translated as cultivation or mental development. So really from the Indo-Tibetan tradition, so India, Tibet, from those original cultures, meditation became, meditation, the English word meditation, became the translation for the Sanskrit Tibetan words of developing familiarity with one's mind. So from the Hindu continent, really, meditation was a process for developing mind, becoming more familiar with the mind. And then it became, in more theological adaptations, meditation became important for becoming one with God or learning from God. So that, that's meditation. So mindfulness can be contextualized in a number of ways. And this is problematic in the field. Everyone refers to mindfulness in different ways. 
I'll give you two ways of describing it. So one is really from the Buddhist point of view. So we really want to better understand, well, how was it used originally? And mindfulness is a translation for, again, a language called Pali, similar to Sanskrit, one of the original languages in Indian continent. And it refers to mindfulness as an act of recollection or remembering and reflecting sort of this continual act of maintaining awareness and discernment of what's around you every moment without forgetfulness of the relation you have to everything around you. And so that kind of that wisdom that you're drawing from is the comes in conjunction with the level of attention that we typically associate with mindfulness. So there's, a, there's an attention to the present moment, but there's also this wisdom component. And also from the Buddhist point of view, compassion. You can't really have mindfulness without compassion from the Buddhist point of view. There's no such thing as mindfulness without compassion. Compassion is a big part of how we view the world in a sort of ethically, well, more of like an altruistically motivated kind of way that most of what we're, we're doing is trying to reduce suffering in the people around us. So there's the Buddhist point of view. So now to synthesize it into the American sort of Americanized, Westernized definition, mindfulness can be described as just focusing attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And that's the simplest way to describe cultivating a state of mindfulness. Let's just be present right now with what we have. Let's not push away any experience. Let's be accepting of that, that which arises and be non-judgmental. So not to, too overly evaluative of it. Just be with it. And as it comes, it will go. Arise and pass. And that's one of the critical features of doing the mindfulness practice is just allowing yourself to be aware of objects as they arise and as they pass without doing anything to them. Yeah, and I think that there's something that a lot of athletes will say. They'll say, well, my running or my cycling is my form of moving meditation. But I don't, well, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no, because just yeah. if you start riding your bike and then your mind just starts worrying, like going and going and going, like my mind yeah. goes into overdrive when I start it's riding a, my bike. And That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, sorry, please continue. That's great. And, and just letting your mind wander and, and fly off the handle while you're out there that's not meditate. Like that's not mindfulness. That's almost the opposite of mindfulness because you're letting yourself get lost in all these stories. Exactly. So that's yeah. a great point. And so sometimes yes, sometimes no is a good answer to that question about, you know, a lot of runners or performance athletes will say the same thing. I'm in the zone. I don't need, that is my form of mindfulness or meditation. And like I said, meditation is really just self-regulation of attention. So yeah, any self-regulation of attention is a form of meditation. So I can tell you what mindfulness does and what mindfulness is and what mindfulness is not. So like I, and we can look at, there's not a lot of data of just focusing concentration, for example, and what that can do to your brain, your body, and your health and the people around you. But when we add the components of, you know, not only sustaining attention through very rigorous practice of breath meditation, for example, that may have a very different effect than going for a run and just focusing on, say, your thoughts, right? Or whatever you do normally. And there's a difference, right? So some people are going to get on the road, uh, run or on a bike and be totally in the zone, but lost in their mind 
because they've essentially just mind wandering about what's going on in their world and their life that their body just takes over and, and does the course without having to think about it, which could be a good strategy, right? Or they could be just focused on breathing. Now, those are two forms of maybe concentration, but one is much more scattered and wandering, like you were saying, um, which depending on the content of the, that mind wandering could actually have a negative or positive influence on you. I'll come back to that. But if you are in the zone and you're just focused on breathing, for example, you are not only enhancing your concentration, but potentially you're also, if you're open to at least reacting to whatever stimulus arises, you can be much more sharp in your acuity and your clarity of your focus. If you're just focused on breath without being receptive to the, to the world around you, you may not be able to react as quickly to, say, a big root that comes out of nowhere when you're riding your bike downhill, right? You need to be re reactive. So there is this middle ground of being focused and on something that's going to help with your physiology. So breathing is a good one, right? You want to focus on breath because it, in fact, your breathing rate goes up to 24 be breaths a minute and your heart rate's up at 180. You want to be able to regulate or else you're going to burn out. So how do you regulate your sympathetic arousal? Breathing, you know, pranayama breathing which is a really good way to control breathing. And that's from the yoga tradition. But point being is that certainly the focus on breathing is a form of concentration. It's going to be the most beneficial to do that. But if you're totally blocking everything out, you may not be able to react as quickly. So as far as performance athleticism goes, I would say just from my own observations that you want to use mindfulness, but in a way that's going to be beneficial. You can use concentration, but if you don't use it in a way that's going to be maybe necessarily informative for when or reactive to some sort of thing that comes out of blue and you need to respond quickly to it, or you, you really want to stop that distraction of those thoughts that will arise and get in your way, right? Or just the fear that may pop up. Right? That's a whole nother thing. So you have distractions of like the content that's normally chatting away in your head. You have the distractions of the fear that arises because that's going to get in your way. And then you have your own hybrid of what works for you and what doesn't. We don't know the answers to these from the science point of view. We do know that there are differences in how you focus your concentration and how that may relate to your flow state or your performance. Yeah. And then if you throw in racing on top of that, then you have all these crazy thoughts of what's going on. Like if, if someone passes you or if you don't feel good or how bad it hurts. And I found that in race situation, especially using the thought labeling to be really helpful. I did a, a podcast about this, just like I have a, a Monday 10 minute podcast I record solo. And it was about how this guy blocked me intentionally and then crashed me out in the race. Like I crashed really hard and I still, I had to get up and keep going. And I was so angry with yeah. this person and I didn't want it to let it ruin my day. So every time I started ruminating and thinking about all the things that I wanted to say to him or that, or like, woe was me, I would just say anger and it helped it dissipate. And every time it came up, it just, you could label it. So I learned that from sit down meditation and the techniques from sitting you can apply while you're moving. But I, I think that you kind of need that time sitting in order to apply it and have the awareness while you're moving because of all the other inputs. You absolutely are right. And in fact, there's great data to support this, this whole experience that you had. So the anger, of course, creates a stress response. And so you're no longer thinking straight, right? 
and you're going to do something impulsive uh, and probably hurt yourself or someone else in that process. Let's not forget that you have, I'll just give you a quick data point here. There's a study out of the Centers for Disease Control that found that individuals with an angry temperament, so are angry very often, had a two and a half times greater risk of dying prematurely of a heart attack, right? So there's an actual negative health outcome to being angry all the time. And so is there even a time when angry is good, right? I mean, there can be a time when anger is good. So in fact, what did you do when you got up? You were angry and then what happened? Well, after I had my words with him, which it was actually the first- Caught up. You had to catch up with him first. Yeah. Well. Well. First, he actually stopped because I crashed so hard. Oh. And it was nice. And it was the first time in my entire. I've never lost my temper in my life. Like never. And that was the first time I've ever yelled at somebody like out of anger. And I. I lost. I yelled at him. I cussed at him. And I was like pissed at myself for that. And I just told him to go. And I caught back up to him later. And I felt all the anger issues that I all all the anger and still there. But. To release it, I just rolled up to him and he's like, oh, like that. I just said, I forgive you. That's what I said to him to try and let it go and maybe to help him let it go too. Wow, that's huge. It, but the problem is that it was a lie. Like I thought that I actually could <laughs> forgive him and I haven't. So, <laughs> but I really tried in the moment. <laughs> fake it till you make it, right? I mean, right. hey, listen to that. Yeah, in fact, there's a lot of research showing fake it till you make it actually is helpful for you. So when you're sitting in the cushion even, and you think you're not doing it right. That speaks to a lot of the problems that people often complain about. Is like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I'm just sitting there with like my, my thoughts. I, this is not working for me, right? Same sort of thing. I think you even just saying, I forgive you, was a powerful sort of way to express that that is a goal that you have, right? It's something that you're striving towards is to be compassionate for the people who are assholes around you. That's hard to do. That is part of the fundamental practice of mindfulness from the Buddhist perspective. In fact, from the Buddhist perspective, you are training yourself to indeed forgive and have compassion for the people around you that you dislike. And that's a tough goal to have. But when you look at the outcomes, anger, like I just said, if you're angry all the time, two and a half times greater risk of you dying prematurely of a heart attack. Not the person who pissed you off or did something right or cut you off. They don't die of a heart attack because you get angry. You do. So if you have total control over how your own emotion will have an effect on your health. So what is the adaptive thing to do in that situation? There's a lot of data suggesting that anger can actually be constructive, meaning that it can be good to be angry. There's some data showing that in animals, I'll just say that in animals who were done wrong, shocked too many times, they get shocked and then they, they try to escape. And what happens with these rats that get shocked is that they'll run to another chamber that's next to them and there's a piece of wood and they'll gnaw on the piece of wood and that'll make them feel better. Those rats that also had a another rat in the other side of the compartment when they got angry or when they got shocked, they ran over to the other compartment and they would bite the other rat. And uh, apparently then they, they made up and they were okay afterwards. So now if you look at the three different types of rats, the rats that got shocked and had no escape, the rats that got shocked that had a wood block to gnaw on, and the rats that got shocked and then got to bite their friend, <laughs> those rats that, that got shocked, so had a stress response and had no outlet, 
they had ulcers. They developed ulcers and disease and stress-related pathology. In fact, their bodies were diseased after six months. But those who were able to express their anger in some way immediately afterwards had a pretty healthy profile. So I guess my point here, my takeaway is get angry, go do what you have to do to express that anger and voice your anger to say that I didn't appreciate that or whatever it is. You have to, you know, violence is probably not the right answer to, <laughs> to describe. But in fact, with the rats, it did the, did the little guy good. Just bite my friend and I'll feel better later. So if our friends who love us the most can take our anger, then approach that person and express your anger and then recover. So the key to emotion regulation in a healthy way is recovery, how fast you can recover. And so like you said, when you said you forgive them, that was your attempt to at least recover, right? Get it out of my head. I don't need to be thinking about this guy who's only going to cause me a two and a half times greater risk of dying of a heart attack because I'm angry. I'm thinking about it. Right. And that's so, what that equanimity is, right? Like you still get aroused emotionally by whatever the emotion is, but it's returning back to center faster. And in your course in 10% Happier, one of the videos was about the Dalai Lama being pissed off and you got to see it. Yes. So, I, yeah, I love to hear that story. Oh, my God. That's so funny. You are sharp. Um, yeah, you're picking up a lot of these things. And I, equanimity is exactly what we're talking about here. So what is healthy is to be able to Right, express your emotion and then return to a healthy baseline quickly. So when you're on the starting blocks and you're about to take off, your heart's starting to race, your heart's starting to pick up to like 150 or whatever, right? And then the gun's off and you're gone, right? You go down. The You're not going to be in peak performance or in a flow state if your heart rate continues to go up and stay up. You're actually going to perform better if your heart rate drops, and then it goes back up and it starts to start gaining variability as you're challenged throughout the course. But I'm, I don't know if you've done a lot of this work with heart rate variability, but that's just a metric that you can work with to enhance your peak performance and how much oxygen you're actually conserving to, for your head and for your body by not getting too freaked out. But point being is what we describe in from the Buddhist model. So I'll, I'll keep drawing from either the Buddhist sort of description of the spiritual path, or I will talk a lot about a contemporary mindfulness model. I'll go back and forth between them. And it's informed by each of them. So the contemporary psychology movement and mindfulness is actually informing meditation as it's practiced in India today, which is really weird. You go to India and they're like taking a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. It's like, what? It's really odd because you guys develop this stuff and now we're teaching you? What? It's very odd. Anyhow, Equanimity, upekka, is a, is a, comes from a Sanskrit word also, which refers to this idea of expressing emotion in a very stable kind of way, weathering the storm, being able to experience some emotion fully, but come back to a baseline very rapidly. So the recovery is part of the equanimity. It makes sense. It sounds equanimous. You want to have that kind of ability to not let some sort of event, like somebody cutting you off on a race course, get it in your head and kill your whole race, race, right? You want to be able to get back on the bike, forget about that asshole. <laughs> Forgive me if he's not an asshole. Maybe he's not an asshole. At least he's waited for you, right? But at least get him out of your head, right? And then continue the course. So that's equanimity. So what, is, what did the Dalai Lama do and how did I experience it? It's a great example because a lot of people think Buddhists are like infallible. Monks don't do anything wrong. 
you know, monks are, are still human and they do bad things as well. We're all trying to be better humans, of course. And the Dalai Lama, you know, he refers to himself as a simple monk. He really does. I, I mean, when you're around him, you feel like the whole space that he fills is a sacred space. Um, he enlightens it with his humor, his lightness, and his laughter. He's just an incredible human being. And I've been, you know, through my work, I've done a lot of work with a non-for-profit organization called the Mind and Life Institute, in which he is an honorary chairman. So I got to see him and be with him multiple times. At one point, I was taking pictures because I had a new, it was a Nikon D90. It was the first SLR that had video. And I went into this conference in Dharamsala, India. Video cameras were not allowed, but regular cameras were. And so I was, I was like lucky enough that I also happened to be able to do videos. Right? <laughs> I did the given. It was actually, I blame Richard Gere, actually, because he's the guy that was there. And he said to me, Dave, if you want a really good picture, go around. You're in this like intimate setting of like 15 people in the, in the Dalai Lama's living room, right? Okay. <laughs> Imagine me, I'm, everyone's talking. It's very serious. And I start making my way around the room because, of course, Richard Gere tells you to do something. I'm like, okay, yeah, sounds like a good idea. So I'm trying to get behind the Dalai Lama and take this picture of his head and the rest of the room, right? It sounded like a great idea. I was a little intimidated by doing by moving closer and closer to his holiness to do that and get behind him, which seemed during this event. And almost right when I got behind him and I was about to take the picture, he got really angry. And I've never heard him get angry before. And this was like, everyone noticed, everyone stopped what they're doing. It was super quiet. And there I was like with the camera, like, I'm going to just sit down on the floor here. And I just uh, slunk down like, whoa, I hope he's not mad at me. He got really angry at the fact that there are water bottles on his table with the labels removed. Now in India, it's a really big deal to remove the labels of your water bottle because water gets manipulated all the time. People fill it up from the tap and then try to sell it. You know, and people are always trying to assassinate His Holiness the Dalai Lama from the Chinese government in some, some way, either his character assassination or actually threatening his life. So he, realizing his water was, was tampered with, he got very angry. And he said, who took the labels off my water bottles? And everyone was like, what? Where did this come from? He just like lost it out of the blue. And he said it again, and everyone was quiet. And finally, this, the CEO of Mind and Life Organizations spoke up and said, sorry, Your Holiness, you know, we're videotaping, and we didn't want to uh, promote that particular brand, so we took the labels off. And he cut them off. I do not come to your house and mess with your water. You do not come to my house and mess with my water. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, don't mess with this guy. Uh, and... It was in quiet for a moment, and Adam was like, I'm so sorry, Your Holiness. I, I was my fault. I take full responsibility and will not do it again. But it, it was scary for a moment. And, uh, and then he was, Adam, like, as quickly as he noticed the water bottles, he was done. He's like, okay, continue. He smiled and laughed and expected us to just continue on. And it was just like this weird experience because everyone was like, Okay, we just saw the Dalai Lama get really angry. Everyone noticed it. And now he's like, done. Oh. So, I mean, that was the perfect um, 
description of equanimity. He was able to, to you know, generate this anger, be constructive in how he, how he made it known. This was not something he appreciated, and then moved on. And so the key here, if when you think about anger as being constructive versus destructive, is having compassion for the person who did something to piss you off, but have anger for the action. Anger for the action, but compassion for the actor. That's how you can have you can have constructive anger. Yeah, I never thought of defining it in that way. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, I mean, we talked a little bit now about how the stress response is it can be good, but you have to know exactly what you're doing with your mind to make it to have that sort of peak enhancement, right? And mindfulness is just a way to train your mind to pay attention in the present moment so you can be more reactive to not just what's going on in your breath to help regulate your stress, but then to also be responsive to whatever happens in your environment. Now, the, the army used to call this situational awareness. Um, there's a woman named Ellen Langer who actually studied mindfulness in the 70s who took this idea of situational awareness, which is the military, which the military uses to basically get an assessment of a room at any moment. So you check in basically of your situational awareness, what's happening around you, what are the objects in the room, who are the people in the room, what's happening in the room, you're taking note of that. So in some sense, that's a form of, of mindful awareness, the way we've described it. But in other senses, it's just a matter of how you are regulating your attention. So there may be a meditative component to that, but it's definitely different from the intentional practice of controlling a wandering mind, so the attention that continues to wander off and focusing on an object, or just to be open and accepting of any cognition or external sensory event that happens. So let it come and experience it and then let it go. So that's different, that aspect. I want to talk about the scanner that you have and how you viewed the brain actually changing in experienced meditators in this scanner, because a lot of people and myself included, like I meditate, but while I'm doing it or even after, I I can't tell a difference in my day if I've meditated or not. Like I don't feel different. And that's why I've been skeptical about meditation. But I just keep reading that your brain changes and it, it reduces brain atrophy. And the mindfulness I've practiced in my life has been over like through yoga practices and through studying, through journaling and through reflection. But I'm sure the meditation I've done has helped a lot because I can point back to certain techniques I've learned in meditation and use them in my daily life. But I think for people who feel the same way I do, like, oh, this isn't working or I can't tell if this is actually doing anything for me, hearing some of the physical things that you've actually seen might help people stay motivated. Yeah, sure, sure. So I'll take a crack at that. So I'll just say also it's important to know that before the year 2000, there wasn't a lot of research on mindfulness or meditation. And there's been about 8,000 articles since the year 2000 on mindfulness and meditation. That's a lot. Yeah, certainly. Not all of it's good research, though. But the fact is, it is growing. There's a lot of research happening on it. So it's really important though, to know that we're, we're getting better and better at understanding the changes in the brain as a result of these types of practices and that are unique to these practices. So a lot of times when you learn any skill, like even juggling has been shown to change the brain. In fact, that's one of the, I think, gross misunderstandings about neuroplasticity or changes in brain activity, changes in brain morphology, so how the brain is structured. How does it change over time? 
Okay, so we know the brain is constantly changing every moment. In fact, I always talk about how our experience in our life can really be broken down into 500 millisecond moments. And so we, if we think about 63 million moments in a year, every moment is an opportunity to actually change your brain in a positive way, a way that can be adaptive, that can be help you flourish, that can help your performance, or it can contribute to risk factors for psychopathology like depression and anxiety, stress-related diseases, cancer, it can degenerate your DNA at the cellular level. We've seen this. So what you fill your mind with really matters. And so that I think that's an important point. In fact, there's a collection of teachings by the Buddha called the Dhammapada that says, our life is shaped by our mind, or we become what we think. So that, that's important to know, I think, as I give you some of the data that shows that after eight weeks of training, for example, you can change the physical structure of your brain. Uh, and now, we, like I said, the caveat here is that you're changing your brain every moment. And so the question is, how is meditation changing your brain in relation to the benefits that it may give you, right? So one, I'll give you a few nuggets of data that hopefully you'll remember. And we talk a lot about brain or neuroscience in, in terms of brain networks instead of brain regions now. So brain networks are easy, just easier to better understand like how particular network functions. So it can be different parts of your brain are, are working together um, in concert to regulate attention. So there's one network called the frontal parietal network, sometimes referred to as the frontal parietal control network. And it involves, the main brain region that it involves is right behind your forehead called the frontal polar cortex. And why is that area so important? It turns out that between two and three million years ago, our earliest hominid ancestors uh, learned how to create fire, use language and tools, all these like really humanoid types of skills. And this was the area of our brain that literally changed in its capacity. It changed the size, the relative size of this brain area compared to all the other brain areas in our brain is twice that of our bonobo and chimpanzee uh, hominid ancestors. So they're the closest hominid ancestors that we have. And our part of the brain that's most responsible for attention and meta-awareness for allowing yourself to flexibly switch between what's happening inside your head and what's happening around you, to switch, to not be just stuck right in your thoughts, to be able to be aware that something's happening, I need to respond, and to go back and forth in a volitional way. Frontal polar cortex. It's important for setting a reminder to do something in the future, prospective types of memory. It's important for multitasking, you know, something that as humans we're trying to do all the time just means that we're continually trying to switch between different and engage between different types of behaviors. So that is one of the areas that shows changes in size. And it's a major node in a network called the frontal parietal attention network. It's really important for attention specifically. But this node, this is like a node in a network. So it's a, it's a major influencer of how it interacts with other networks and how it coordinates activity within that network. So the frontal polar cortex is the first area that I'll emphasize as being important in meditation, that it that is not only growing in size, but what we find is that the more one meditates, the larger that particular brain region is, or the more activity that you see in that brain region during across styles of meditation practice. 
So we know that it's like flexing the mental muscle when you meditate to be able to stay, remain focused and equanimous is being controlled by this brain region and its associated network. The other brain region I wanted to focus on also is called the posterior cingulate cortex. The posterior cingulate cortex just means, posterior means it's near the back. Cingulate is just a strip. It's a strip of tissue, gray matter, that really separates the outer cortex to the subcortical structures like brainstem or primitive structures like the amygdala and hippocampus. It's just a strip of cortex that's important for transmitting information between higher order cognition and, and more automatized types of behaviors. And so the posterior part of that is called the posterior cingulate cortex, and it's really important for mind wandering, for autobiographical self-processing, so really reflecting upon your own story, who you are, who I am, who, what did I have for breakfast, constructing that narrative for who you are and what you've been doing in your life. That's what we refer to as selfing. That area of the brain is not necessarily bad. It's good for maintaining a sense of self. It's also good for planning some aspects of using memory for planning for the future. So it works together with that, those attention networks to help plan for the future. But where it's really bad is when it's distracting, right? When you're in the middle of your race and all you're doing is thinking about the guy who cut you off. That is the posterior cingulate cortex that's going blinking back and forth. So what you see in meditators is the ability to actually regulate that particular brain region really well. So it turns off the narrative, getting out of your way. You're able to get into that flow state by avoiding getting stuck in that narrative. Getting that narrative after the race, you know, when you are sitting on the couch and reflecting, then it's going to be important um, to sort of think about what you did, what you did wrong, or trying to correct the future. So there's two brain regions that we talked about. Both of them have their own network associated with it. One is an attention network, and the other one is actually referred to as the default mode network. And it's referred to as a default mode network is that because half of our lives is spent in our narrative, in that space of just ruminating. And unfortunately for the majority of us, it's usually negative in content. So we're like talking about how bad we were in that race, how we're not going to be as good as we can. It's just really about getting down on yourself when it's negative self-reflection. This ruminative state can really be problematic. Like we said before, whatever you fill your mind with, you're going to affect your, your biology, your physiology. It's going to affect how your longevity of your whole body just from being negative or positive about it. So be really mindful about what you fill your head with. That's really a key to it. So frontal polar cortex is up. The posterior cingulate cortex in this default mode network is down. And then the other... There's definitely different changes in the brain. I'd say the one last one I can give you is the insula. And the insula also works with that frontal polar cortex together. But it's most important for what we refer to as salience detection and for body awareness, for helping us become more aware of bodily sensations, what's happening around our body and inside of our body. It's allowing us to detect things in the external environment or inside as they happen, and to just be embodied with that experience instead of avoiding. So that's an area that also shows to be more active during meditation. It also seems to be preserved 
that area and the frontal polar cortex are preserved from atrophying or shrinking as a related age as a result of regular age-related decline. So most people after the age of 21, unfortunately, we, our brains start shrinking, and meditation just happens to show some evidence for protecting that atrophy uh, over time. So not only is it helping with mental awareness and regulating your emotions, but it's also protecting your brain from shrinking, from you know not using it very much uh, as you get older. Is there anything else people can do to prevent their brain from shrinking? Like, does learning new things and always being doing that kind of thing help? Yes, I would say the most important thing is exercise and sleep. So if you're exercising regularly and you're sleeping, then meditate. And then, you know, talk to me about being a flourishing human being. Yeah. And then I also heard somewhere that the more you meditate, the less efficient your sleep gets. Is that true? Ah, did you hear this from... Who did you hear this from? I think I heard it on a podcast somewhere. It might have even been Dan's podcast. Yeah, I may have actually said it. Yes. <laughs> so there's a lot of confusion in literature actually about the effect of meditation on sleep. And I think the take-home message that I, from my read of literature, and it's mixed because meditation works differently for different people. It works differently for people who are doing it just to reduce their stress versus people who are doing it like serious three-month meditation retreat right? Those are different meditators, There's different breeds. And so when you take those contexts into account, and then you see where there may be more consistent patterns. So for people who have a little insomnia, they can't fall asleep at night because they're in their heads. Meditation will help reduce, improve that insomnia, reduce those thoughts, improve insomnia, sleep faster, get to sleep faster. It doesn't seem to affect sleep maintenance on insomnia, which means you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. So it's less efficient for that. It's even less efficient for doing anything for your sleep if you're on a long-term meditation retreat. And from my read of literature, the longer the retreat is, the less efficient your sleep gets, meaning the more awakenings you'll have during the night. Now, there's no definitive reason for this, but my take would be that, in fact, when you are meditating for long periods of time, and when you're on retreat, you're doing like 10 hours of meditation a day, your metabolic rate is much lower. So you're not consuming as much energy. So you don't need to recover as much from by doing sleep. Sleep is really important for mostly for recovery of your metabolic demands. So if you're not metabolically demanding, to your body, then you won't need as much sleep. And in fact, that you see that often in meditators is that once they, if they are actually getting the opportunity to sleep six hours or more, that they will have lots of awakenings due to the efficiency of which they are consuming energy throughout the retreat. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I've heard some just stories that monks have told about how they're sleeping like three hours a night, but they're sitting all day meditating, so they don't need as much sleep. Yeah. Like I said, sleep is restorative by nature. So if you are gaining some of that, and there may even be microsleeps happening with these monks. So, you know, uh, even the the best meditators, the Olympian meditators of monastic with monastic training, fluctuate in terms of their what we refer to as clarity in their practice. So you could sit on a cushion for 15 years and not gain any benefits, whereas other people, you know, are going to gain benefits from five, 10 minutes of practice at a time. So there are differences in individuals. And those top meditators, 
may actually be fluctuating. They may be falling asleep. I've seen plenty of meditators in monastic settings just with their eyes closed, slumped over, sleeping. So if you feel like you're failing because you keep falling asleep, remember that even the greatest monks are falling asleep too. Yeah. So before we hit record, we started talking about flow state a little bit and meditation. And I've read some of the, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I've heard it pronounced like my high chicks and my high. Oh, chicks and Mihai, yeah. 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 <laughs> Hungarian psychologist. Yeah. 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 So I'd love to talk about that. Sure. So by Chicks and Mihai developed this concept of flow in like the 70s, you know, and it was developed after investigating the experiences of individuals during times when they were having peak experiences. And so these are mostly performance athletes, in fact. So when you're having a optimal psychological state in which you are, in which everything came together during the performance of that activity, that's described as flow. Being in the zone is described as a flow state. And what that is and how that relates to, say, concentration in meditation is slightly variable. And there's not a lot of good research that has tried to tease it apart, but there are definitely similarities. So you can look at like a, a ground squirrel, you know, sitting silently, quietly, staring at, say, like a, you know, a hole in the ground for like, I don't know, some lizard or something that he's either scared of or he wants to pounce on. Point being is that there's so many animals or so many, or so many models for concentration in, in the natural world is concentration and stillness the only factor involved in achieving benefits from, from meditation? Maybe not. Are they in a flow state? When they're totally focused in what seems like in this optimal state of just readiness to pounce, I, I think you know there are differences. Once you acquire the skills for a complex behavior like, say, mountain biking or diving or any, any real skill-based sport, when your body takes over, you are going to be much more efficient at doing that activity if your mind stays out of it. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? So optimal flow states or optimal psychological states are really ones in which you're, you're embodying the practice of doing without thinking about what you're actually doing. You're letting your body just do what it's been trained to do. And that works with meditation. It works with riding a bike. It works with anything. Like, you know, when you first learn to ride a bike, you're like, okay, I got to be balanced here. But how often do you think about, you know, balancing when you're on the bike? You're just doing it, right? Body reacts. And that's way before you have time to think about it. So in that sense, flow is an embodied state of concentration, whereas mindful concentration in some Hindu context would refer to it as samadhi. The samadhi is a state of ultimate concentration on single point that you lose complete, you become totally selfless in that experience. So that the experience then you lose the duality of self and object. You're no longer focusing on an object. You are the object, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, the matrix. There is no spoon. <laughs> now, and that's really it. It's becoming one with your bike, right? It's when you have your body has taken over some object, like your bicycle, that like your tire touching the ground is a new sensory modality for you, right? To experience how close can you get to noticing 
when, you know, your tire goes over like a little rock? How are you responding to that? It's like, it's no longer your fingers touching. It's the tire. It's the extension of yourself. That selflessness that expands can be experienced either on a bicycle, in a performance athletic situation. It can be experienced sitting on a cushion, focusing on an object, the breath or a mantra. But the quality of attention changes depending on whether you're a squirrel waiting for something to pounce on something, or you are a meditator in that state of samadhi. It kind of goes back to our original description of the, the person who says, well, when I bike you know, it, or run, it's, that's my own state of meditation. It depends on how, the quality that you bring with that state, state of concentration. If there's an element of not only concentration, but equanimity, openness, conscientiousness, acceptance, compassion, then we're talking a little bit more about mindfulness, right? And if you take away some of those elements, then you're focused more on just concentration or attention training, which is important too. You can train attention. You can be a sniper, right? Really good at concentrating, but does that mean you're, you are, can be, a, this is a big debate in the field. Can you be a mindful sniper? Right? Can, you, <laughs> can you be mindfully killing people? You have the element of concentration there, but you don't have the embodiment of the non-dual perspective because killing somebody would be the act of killing yourself, really. You're killing another human being. And that, that doesn't embody the, the true nature of mindfulness. Like, like we said earlier, without compassion, there is no mindfulness from the Buddhist perspective. The contemporary mindfulness movement, I think there's a little bit more flexibility there. And that's why we are training our military in mindfulness. And so, indeed, there are mindful snipers out there. But we're wrestling with this idea, can you be a mindful sniper? Because you're using the tool that you're learning for bad, right? But you could do the same with a hammer. You can take a hammer and you can use it to build a house or you can use it to, to kill somebody. It's true. Same sort of metaphor. Yeah, and you mentioned um, the military, and then we also were talking before we started that there's a program at UBC that teaches meditation or mindfulness to nurses and, and people in the medical fields. So, yeah. Yeah. like, how big of a, a part of curriculum for different professions is this becoming? You see it everywhere. I mean, it's not only in healthcare environments. I mean, you see it in every hospital. It is the standard of care for for all of psychological treatment, you see some element of mindfulness as being the go-to, you know, with traditional evidence-based practices like CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy can be mixed with mindfulness for really positive outcomes, especially for anxiety, for preventing relapse of depression, for pain, for the affective dimension of pain. So there's a lot of ways that you can use mindfulness in different ways. So what, what was the actual question there? Because I missed that, that part. Oh, yeah. I was just asking like how prevalent that is becoming oh, because most people probably would be surprised to hear that the military is teaching mindfulness. Because to some people, meditation or mindfulness is still this like woo-woo thing that yogis do. That's right. So it's not that. In fact, it, it's, you know, we can just think of it as mental training. Just like you go to the gym to f work out your physical muscles, mindfulness is really, in a contemporary context, the way it's taught today is done as just a systematic form of mental training. Just like you go to the gym, you go to the gym to train your mind, to help regulate your emotions, your cognitions, and to be much more uh, conscientious about what's happening around you, to be aware of your own mental habits, and to just improve upon those things, and just gain insight into the whole nature of mind. So that these are elements of mindfulness that are coming into play in all sectors of society. So 
in sports, you certainly see it in all types of sports. You see it in helping reduce burnout in care providers, caregivers, so in nurses and doctors who are experiencing tons of burnout because of their the, the volume of patients that they have to see. There is definitely prevalence there. There's also prevalence in schools now. We're starting to see a lot of mindfulness programs show up in social and emotional learning types of curriculum. You know, and you see it at so many levels. And, and I think the point here is that we're not talking about stealth Buddhism. We're talking about something that we've adopted into a secular context that is good for body and mind. And we want to be able to make sure that everyone learns these practices as a skill that they can have to help deal with uh, the difficulties of life. And that's just really what it is. It's a, a skill set. And my last question is about frequency. I've read that it's more important to do it for just a couple of minutes every day than to do it three times a week for 10 or 15 minutes. Is that relevant or true? There's no good data on this dose curve, and it's going to depend. It's going to depend on the person. It always varies. So what we do know is the more you practice, the better the outcomes. So the more you practice, the more stress reduction you'll have, the better attention you'll have, the better improvements on dealing with pain and so on and so forth. Is there an optimal dose per session? No. It'll vary. You, you have to feel it out. There's a Buddhist scholar named Alan Wallace who says the sweet spot is 24 minutes. So not 23, not 25, but 24 to at least get into, you know, if you're practicing regularly, you can just drop in at, you know, while you're in line at the grocery store. You know, you don't have to make time or ritual out of it. You just do it wherever you are. You know, if you can be aware of your breathing, you can meditate. So you do it wherever you can. But if you want to try to do it formally and ritualize it, then yeah, you do have to find, you have to put effort into it. It takes effort. And it's not always easy. It's not as nice as the blissed out blondes you see on the cover of magazines and Whole Foods. <laughs> I mean, when you sit with your thoughts, it can be difficult and it takes time and effort to regulate those thoughts. So where can people get more of your information? And you also are a meditation instructor, right? Yeah, so I most of everything I do is based off of contemplativeneurosciences.com. So you can go to that website. You know, I'm part of the Osher Center for Integrated Medicine and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which I guess we got, we didn't quite get finished the, all the introductions, but that was, that's where I am most days, at Vanderbilt University in National Tennessee. And the Osher Center for Integrated Medicine is also a great resource for people who are looking for complementary and integrative approaches to uh, healthcare. And so that's a clinic that, you know, I reside in, our lab is there, and our website contemplativeneurosciences.com has plenty of resources where you can find everything that we're doing and, and, and where you want to learn how to meditate. Or if you have questions, you can always just reach out. Awesome. And yeah, I highly recommend people look into a lot more about you because we only barely scratched the surface of your expertise and all the awesome work you've done. Well, thanks so much. You know, it's, it's been such a pleasure being with you and your audience. I hope they find value in it. I hope they see that meditation is just the beginning of a lot of healthy living that you can do. But in terms of performance athletes, I think we're still starting to see the value in it. We see a lot of it in basketball in, and, uh, in, you know, the Seattle Seahawks actually also, also they use it, have a medita formal mindfulness program that they have said is what helped transform their whole program. 
you know, Kobe Bryant does it regularly. I mean, there's so many athletes that do it regularly. There are a lot of resources out there. If you want resources on who coaches who directly work with athletes, I can provide that to, to your listeners as well. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure actually people would really like to hear that. All right, I'll send that offline. Cool. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it was super sure. fun. I learned a lot. So, and I'm great. sure the audience, I'm sure the audience is learning a lot too. Well, thanks, Sonia. We'll be in touch again and uh, stay mindful. That was awesome. And I loved connecting with him on a personal level. We actually got to chat before and after the episode. And I think that there's going to be some fun collaborations between us sometime in the future. If you guys haven't checked out the 10% Happier app, check that out and make sure that you check out his course in the app. It's pretty interesting to watch some of these brain scans. Thanks again for being part of my community. You guys are the reason that I do this. And I really, really appreciate that you guys are listening to this show and all the emails that you've been sending me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And I just wanted to say thanks. Hope you have an awesome weekend and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here on Monday.